I have uh, one announcement to tell you about, and that is that uh, on October 14th, because we're our, after we finish the book of Ruth, we're starting our next series in the building that we're moving to. Uh, but we're trying to move some stuff ahead of time. So on October 14th, what we're doing is a men's breakfast at 8 a.m. So if you're a dude, come to breakfast. We'll fill you up with bacon and sugar. Get you a whole bunch of energy, and then we're going to move the offices that are here, but the rest of Element isn't moving until the month after that. At some point, you're going to walk in here, all that laminate flooring in the back, not in the kids' rooms, but just in back in the lounge is going to be gone, and so you're going to get to walk around on concrete. You'd be like, something's happening. Yeah, we're moving. Uh, but on October 14th, we're going to move a lot of the stuff upstairs and the offices and stuff. So if you want to come to the men's breakfast, if you're a dude, come to that. If you want to come and help out after that, show up about 9.30. Men and women both will put you all to work, uh, and you guys can help us out, and we're going to move a whole lot of stuff. So 9.30, if you're not coming to the breakfast, though if you're a dude, you should. And 8 o'clock, you're coming to the breakfast, and we're going to be moving everything from the offices over. that makes sense? I feel like I'm making no sense this week. I've got to tell you, I, I was doing all kinds of stuff at the other property this week, and I haven't been here very much. And so this message, I hope, makes sense to you because I feel like it's going to be all over the place. You're welcome. Uh, if, if you're new to Element, it's not to like, lower your expectations, but lower your expectations. Uh, if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to go deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Ruth chapter 2, verse 6. And it says, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to trust you enough that we would live out what you have already done in our hearts and our souls and our lives. That we would understand the great blessings that you have first given to us, the great love that you have poured out on us, and that in turn would be lived out by our character so the world would know what the gospel is by how we live and by how we speak. That the words that we say and the actions that we do would reflect greatly who you are and speak volumes of the God that has rescued us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so... We are taking some months in the fall here to go through the Old Testament book of Ruth. This is week five. We want to see God's continuing story, not just in Ruth, but also in the world today. Because we all have a story. And I think in order for us to truly understand who we are called to be, we must understand first God's overarching story over all of us. And so we've looked at multiple ways in the book of Ruth that God continues to show his providential care, not just for Ruth, but also in our lives and hardships today. In Ruth, you see all these signs of hope because God is constantly working like in our euphemism just under the surface. He's always doing things. And that's really what the book of Ruth teaches, that we don't ever really need to lose hope, though we do at times, but we don't need to because God is doing a million different things in a million different ways for his glory and our good, and many times we just don't see it. And there are times and places in our lives where, yes, God appears to be silent, or yes, God appears to be absent, or God appears not to be listening, or at least not listening to us. But again, one of the great things about Ruth is that he is listening. 
uh, Tim Keller doesn't say a lot about the book of Ruth, but what he does say is if you were to put it next to other books in the Bible like Jonah, who gets you know swallowed by a great fish and puked up on a beach, or the book of Genesis where there's all these miracles, or really any other Old Testament book, he says what you notice is there's nothing in the book of Ruth that's miraculous. Nothing. He says there's no miracles, no dreams, no visions. There's no words from God in people's heads. Ruth doesn't hear words from God, doesn't see visions. Naomi doesn't hear words from God, doesn't see visions. Boaz doesn't see visions from God, hear from God. This is what he says. This is a book for people who look around their life and they see absolutely no dramatic answers to prayer, no dramatic events of any sort. They see nothing but mundane and mundane times and hard times. So see, it's for us. Right? That's who we are. The book of Ruth speaks so much truth into our lives because it tells us in the mundane and in the normal and average and everyday, God is still at work. And he has never once stopped. Jesus is there. He is always working in our lives. Again, like I said, a million different ways and a million different times, even though we don't always see it. And so the book of Ruth calls us to see all these signs of hope that God is working always under the surface. So last week, we looked at how Naomi is now returning back into Bethlehem. All the ladies of the town show up and they're like, hey, look, it's Naomi. And what does Naomi say? She's like, don't call me Naomi. And that means pleasant or sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, angry, old hag. I am the bitter woman down the street. You better not bring your kids over for Halloween because I'm going to give them the razor blades. It's that lady right there. She says, she says I've gone away full and I have come back empty. She, and, but the truth is she hasn't come back empty because she walks into town with what? Ruth, two of you. Ruth. Shouldn't be that hard, guys. It's the name of the book, okay? Okay. She comes back into town with Ruth. Ruth is a woman who has displayed a great, deep, abiding love and courage in a God who she has just converted to, who she has just started to follow. And Ruth will end up changing Naomi's life. Ruth will actually change our lives. Because she'll marry a guy named Boaz, and they will have a child that leads to a child that leads to King David, uh, the greatest king Israel had. One of King David's descendants is Jesus. And so that changes all of our lives. So Naomi has come back with something that's a very great treasure, yet she says, I've come back empty. And it's even kind of funny, because the ladies are like, I don't think so. You know, if you come back empty, who's that you're bringing with you? I'm sure Ruth is like, hello, (laughs) I'm, I'm right here. And what's happened to her is what tends to happen to us a lot. Naomi has an agenda for what she thinks God should be doing in her life, how God should be working, how God should be displaying himself. And so she can't see the signs of hope that God is actually placing within her life. She isn't seeing all the great things God has put there. And a lot of us, we end up in that same position a lot of time in our lives. We have our own agenda for God. And when God doesn't do our agenda, we say God's not working or God has failed or something like that. I would say too many of us are blind to what God is really doing, all the incredible things, or we're running from the things that he wants to do in our lives. Maybe you're in a place today where you feel like you have no hope. Ruth is teaching us that even in those mundane things, God is at work and he's still moving and working in your life. I know that sounds like it should be my wrap-up. It's just my intro. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. I want you to keep what I just said in mind as we walk through this uh, about God's continuing goodness and his kindness. Today I titled this message, Work, Rest, and Noticing, which is really just a longer title to talk about character. And the truth is, is that our character will be shaped by how we view God working in our lives and how we view who God is. And if you read the scriptures, character is hugely important because it is a great witness for how we talk about and live out the goodness of God in our lives. It's like I, I say a lot to you guys that trouble has a way of revealing and making evident our character. 
And throughout the scripture, you see a lot of people respond to these trials in different ways. The writer of Proverbs in 24 verse 10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The NIV gives you the thoughts behind that. It says, if you falter in in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Part of what trouble does is it reveals who we really are. When your life falls down around you, how you react and respond is really, in the end, what you truly believe. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. These are all about issues of character. So what I want to do is take some time today, and we'll talk about three different people in the book with their character. I'm going to talk about Naomi. I'm going to talk about Boaz, who you will meet today, and then we will talk about Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So let's first talk about Naomi. Uh, I know if you've been here the last few weeks, I give Naomi a bum rap. I cap on her a lot. I kind of make fun of her as an angry old woman. Uh, but I will tell you that I think it is her friendship and love of Ruth that made this huge difference in Ruth's life. Even here she calls Ruth my daughter. Not my daughter-in-law, but my daughter. It has been said that other than our relationship with Jesus, our relationship and friendships around us are what majorly shape our lives. Even in John fifteen fifteen, Jesus says... I don't call you servants. I now call you friends. I now call you friends. And I would say even as great as marriage is, the essence of what makes a marriage good, I think the essence of what makes sex in a marriage good is the idea of friendship. So in chapter 1 of Ruth, there is this modern-day politically incorrect things that happens, and I love it because I think too many people are too sensitive today. Could be you, maybe not if the shoe fits. Where is it? Uh, Like if you talk to most people today, they don't mind Christians being nice. They don't mind Christians helping out. You should just never actually talk about Jesus, though. In our culture right now, you do nice things and you shut up about the gospel. You don't talk about the gospel. You just don't do it. It's something that people would consider intelligent. Don't talk about the gospel. And I would say, I pray none of you ever become that intelligent because I think you should talk about the gospel all the time. The essential idea behind it is that no one should say that your God is truer than somebody else's view of God. You must never argue with anybody to leave their gods and take up your God. But that's exactly what happens in the first chapter of Ruth. Naomi's sons have died. Their wives, Ruth and Orpah, are now connected to Naomi. They're going to follow her wherever she goes. Naomi tries to send them back to their family and their gods. I know it sounds like a very bad evangelism strategy. Go back to your gods. Orpah, Ruth's sister, says, okay, thanks, Uh, bye-bye. And then Naomi tries to get Ruth to leave, and Ruth won't leave. She even says, Orpah has gone back to her family and her gods. Why won't you go back? And Ruth's response speaks volumes. She says, I don't want my gods anymore. I want your God, because your God is real and true. And Ruth just doesn't use the word God. She says this in Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, and that's the word Yahweh, that's God's covenant name. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So she uses God's covenant name right there. Ruth takes that name upon herself. And this is why most commentators believe this right here is the conversion of Ruth into being a follower of the one true God of Israel. We know this is probably the first time because if she would have taken the name Yahweh on herself at any other point, then Naomi wouldn't have urged her to leave and go back to her family because they wouldn't accept her because she has now taken God's covenant name upon herself. And the the fact that she says at this point, at that spot, says, I convert. I don't want all these other things I have been chasing. What I want is the real God, conversion. 
But you have to ask, how did Naomi proselytize? And even the word proselytize is like a bad word in our culture today. This is important. Naomi did it with her words and her character both. It wasn't just her actions, it was her words. It wasn't just her words, it was her actions. Both of these things coming together. Naomi is not what we would call a pluralist in her religion. She is not saying that following any god is it's all okay. She doesn't say that. If you look carefully at verses, verses uh, 8 and 9 in chapter 1, when she starts urging them to go back to their family, she said your families and their gods because it was the same thing in that culture. They're Moabites, they go hand in hand. But Naomi does not say, may your gods bless you. She does not say, I hope you find satisfaction in your religion like I find it in mine. She doesn't say, Yahweh and the, and the god Chemosh of the Moabites are same and equally valid. What she says in chapter 1, verse 8 is, may the Lord deal kindly with you. God's covenant name. May the Lord deal kindly. If you're going to live a blessed life, it's the Lord who is going to have to bless you. There is only one God. In that day... Everybody had their own gods. Everybody did. They believed different gods ruled different area, areas. There's actually places in the Bible where some people go and they believe in the God of Israel and they say, hey, can I take some dirt from Israel back with me so I can worship the God of Israel there? It's like, this is dumb. God made everything everywhere. If you were in Moab, you'd worship the Moabite God or Edom. They would have the Edomite God. And so all countries had these things. They wouldn't expect you outside of their country to worship their God. It's, it's a lot like today. We all have our own gods. We all have our own gods. But the God of Israel is different. He comes along and he says, I'm not the God of one place. I am not the God of one people. I made everything. And I made everyone. And he takes this group of people called the Israelites. And he blesses them and calls them his own. And he sends them to be a blessing to the world. That's why he chose them. Not because they're better. To send them out to be representatives and priests of who he is so the world would know. They would go out. People would come in. They'd be welcome. They'd know who this God is because God was going to work through a people to make this thing happen. They were to be the image of God to the world. Naomi knows that. So Naomi is not a pluralist, but what actually converts Ruth in this? She's not like a modern-day street preacher who's just rude and mean. And when you think proselytize, that's what most people think, like rude and mean and loud, and you don't listen to anybody, and you talk a whole lot. It, it, it's horrible. This, this is what I think actually converts Ruth. I think it's Naomi's love. A couple weeks ago, I told you that there's a couple of views of why Naomi tries to send these girls back to their families. One view is that she's embarrassed of them because they're Moabites. If she goes back to Israel with Moabites, people are going to be like, how horrible is that of you? But I think on the other side, it's, it's love because she wouldn't send them back because she thinks their gods are fine. She wouldn't send them, uh, she also wouldn't send them back, you know, because, because she was embarrassed because I think she's lonely and she wants people around her. She would send them back really, I think, because she loves them. It is giving out of the sacrificial love that puts others in front of herself. Up to this point, they do not even believe in her God, but they see her character. They see her put their needs ahead of her own. And I believe at that point is why Ruth sees this and says, I want your God. Because it's different than anything I've ever seen. Keller says this. It's when Naomi loves Ruth, even though she doesn't believe that she begins to believe. It's when Naomi sacrificially loves somebody who doesn't believe in her God at all, that her God begins to look credible. Ruth says, the reason I want to believe in a God who makes all these exclusive claims about himself is the non-exclusive love that he just engendered in your heart towards me. Ruth has probably never seen anybody love her the way Naomi just loved her. In this culture and these gods that you worship, it's all about yourself and getting what you want and getting what you need. Guys, I will tell you, our God makes exclusive claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
But his love that he's supposed to engender in our heart is supposed to be non-exclusive in how we love. If you learn to love people in deep friendship, regardless of what they believe, what you believe is going to look very credible. If you only love people who believe what you believe or look like they're on their way to believe what you believe, why should they believe what you believe? There is nothing wrong with saying, my view of God is truer than your view of God, because everybody has a view of God. Everybody does. Everybody is basing their life on their view of God. We believe the world would be better off. People would bow down and worship and love who Jesus is. But there's, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. There's nothing wrong with being, I believe in Jesus as the only one and true God. What is horrible is how we treat people sometimes because of that view. Like, if you hate bigots and you think you are superior to bigots, you're a bigot. That's how it works. But if you have a deep and profound faith in Jesus and you love people, not condone what they do. And loving people doesn't mean telling people anything they want to do is okay. But you love people like God love you. That is the most transforming thing that facilitates encounters with God. I think it is this unconditional love of powerful friendship. That's what changed Ruth's life. Obviously, the Spirit of God working in that. Naomi's character gets noticed even in the midst of her sadness and her loss and her bitterness. It gets noticed by Ruth and by us because I pointed it out to you. Okay, chapter 2, verse 3. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So let's talk about Boaz, okay? I love this guy. I'm going to tell you all kinds of cool things about Boaz because I just think he's an, he's an amazing dude. Now, we know that the book of Ruth takes time in what's known as the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, everybody does what they feel is right for themselves, right in their own eyes. This is why at some point I think we'll teach through the book of Judges because that's how America lives. That's how most of you live. Like, everything is right in my own eyes. That's what I'm going to do. So the Israelites have come to a place where they accept this Canaanite oppression that has been placed upon them. Many of them are starting to worship Canaanite gods. They're not living and following who God calls them to be. It is not marked by a time with people who are bold in following God. But when you're introduced to Boaz, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The words, worthy man, it's translated different in almost every translation. NIV says man of standing. New American Standard says man of great wealth. King James Version says mighty man of wealth. The Holman Standard Bible says prominent man of noble character. The Jewish Publication Society's Tanakh says mighty man of valor. Everybody's like, I don't know what to do with these words. I don't know why I'm supposed to tra- how I'm supposed to translate these words. But it's obvious it's trying to tell you about Boaz's character. It's trying to tell you who this guy is. There's two words used together. It's this word called chayel and this word called gibber. Uh, gibber is the word for sir. It's strong. It's masculine. It's, it's brave. Someone who's a defender of the weak and women and children in modern Hebrew, that's the word for sir. Then you have this word chayel, and that's the word where you get worthy from that, that you see in the text. And it does refer to economic wealth, but when these two words are used together in the scriptures, it always references a military hero. That's what it references. It only speaks of a war hero. In, Jephthah, uh, in uh, Judges, there's a guy named Jephthah, and they use the same expression of who he is. And so if you look at a broader context, it means Boaz is more than a wealthy farmer because he is that. But it's pointing out to you, and many people believe that whoever wrote the book of Judges also wrote the book of Ruth, so he wouldn't change his terminology, that he is so much more than that. In Judges, men in Israel are not brave. They're not protecting their God's name. They're not protecting the people around them. But Boaz is different. Boaz is a war hero. 
Why is prosperity returning to Bethlehem? The text kind of indicates because there's people like Boaz who are steering people back to the worship of the one true God. I think what the text is trying to tell you is that Boaz is unlike most men of his day. Most men in Boaz's day do what's right in their own eyes instead of what's right in the eyes of God. So you've got to look at Boaz as being bigger than his bank account and see his courage. And so when Boaz arrives, how does he greet his people? He says, may the Lord be with you, God's covenant name. How do people respond? The Lord bless you, God's covenant name. How does your boss greet you? Right? Your boss up, the Lord bless you. And you're like, oh, my boss is awesome. You're like, the Lord burn you in hell. You know, I mean, how, how do you feel about your boss? What you see is Boaz loves his people because God loves him. And the people love him back because he's living in a certain way that displays the character of God. You see this, how he takes care of the people who are the gleaners that come into his fields. In the scriptures, the poor were taken care of by landowners. So when they harvested, they wouldn't harvest to the edge of their fields. They would leave food so the poor could come and actually have food. They didn't get a handout. They had to work for it. They cut it and take it home, and they would eat that. And so what you see is Boaz is a guy who makes sure, sure the poor have something to glean. They have something to eat. He doesn't harvest to the edge of his fields. This is so widows like Naomi and Ruth and foreigners like Ruth, who are the most vulnerable in society, would actually have food to eat. They're allowed to glean. But Boaz takes it a step further. Ruth 2.5, it says, Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And referring to Ruth. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now, what you'll see next week is Boaz inquires of this to make sure that Ruth is kept safe and unharmed. And he will approach her to tell her that she will be safe in his fields. He will give instructions to people that make sure she is kept safe and no one one hurts her. Boaz is a guy who looks outside of himself to the welfare of others. Boaz's character gets noticed by Ruth and by all of us, because I'm pointing it out to you. Okay, Ruth 2, 5 through 7. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So let's talk about Ruth. I feel a little bad for Ruth because what you don't notice in the text is there is sexual innuendo after sexual innuendo, and it's all directed towards Ruth. And Ruth is not a dummy. I think she's smart, and she chose Boaz's field because of the reputation he had in the community. She also knows she is very pretty. The text alludes to this multiple times. It's not just because of her name. I have talked to you before about Moabite history, how Moabite women were used to go in and seduce Israelite males away from God. And so Moabite women have this reputation. They're slutty. They're loose. They're easy. They know how to dance with the pole. The the text here, it repeats this over and over and over. Chapter 1, verse 4, it talks about that took Moabite wives. 122, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth 2.2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, out in the field, Boaz asked about Ruth, how does the guy respond? Not the young woman who came back with Naomi. He says she is the young Moabite woman. It is constantly coming back to this. These are all ways of saying, you know, those ones. They're great in the sack and they're easy to get there. This is one of the reasons that the verses we look at next week, you will see Boaz take all these preemptive measures to make sure Ruth is kept safe. Ladies, there are some men out there who only want you for one thing. And they'll be nice to you, and they will say all these right words to you. They will get what they want, and then when they get bored of you, they will toss you aside. I would tell you, you need to make men work for you. 
You wait till you get an I do, and then it's his goods too. So there you go. That's when you give up the goods. Okay. What you see is Ruth comes up, okay, and, and she says, I want to glean. I don't want a handout. I want to work. I want to work hard. I want to work well. You see, she only takes a short break. How different is that from people you work with, right? Oh, man, it's been 15 minutes. I need another half hour break. Seriously. She works hard and well. Probably takes a break for a little bit of food and drinks some water and goes back and keeps working. That's Ruth. And see, she could have used her looks. Because she is, like I said, a good-looking woman. And, and we know good-looking people have it easier. I, I see it time and time and again when I look at other people because I don't have it. But I see how easy good-looking... Do you understand? Studies have been shown. Okay, studies have been shown that the better-looking you are, the higher chances you have of job interviews and getting a job out of that interview. The more money that you will make. The better-looking person you will marry. Ladies, men have been scientifically proven that the better-looking you are, you can negotiate a price on something, and the better-looking you are, the cheaper it will be. Because men are stupid. Okay? <laughs> Just how it happens. She, she could use her body to get exactly what she wants, but she doesn't. She could be what they all think she is, but she doesn't do that. She works hard and well, not just for herself, but also for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth comes. She works all day long, long enough for the boss to show up. And at some of your jobs, you know that's a really long time till the boss shows up. And at this point, her character gets noticed by all the people working in the field and Boaz and you, because I'm pointing it out to you so you see it too. I will tell you guys, character matters. Character matters. Who you are matters. Not because God loves you more because you have better character, but because God values the character of our lives. When we live out in our lives what God has done in us, that is meant to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think there are way too many Christians today who live practically as atheists. I think they preach a false gospel because they don't live out the goodness and the grace and the redemptive love of God in their lives out with other people. People just don't see it. We must be a people who live out the true gospel. We must be people who speak the true gospel. If we truly see Jesus as the redeemer of our lives, as the one that all good news is found in, we should want to emulate him. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do we love like God? We give ourselves up for others. That's what it says in Ephesians right there. And what you see in the text is Naomi gives herself up for Ruth. But Ruth stays and gives herself up for Naomi. Boaz goes out of his way to make sure those who God sent into his area of influence were loved and taken care of and protected. But they also would work well, and he was generous in that. Which I think leads everything back to Jesus. Because as I keep telling you, this is God's story. It's a redemptive story. So we see who God is and what he does and how he moves. Because God is always the main character of every story. Nobody manipulates God's providential care. God's, in his sovereignty, moves his entire creation out of the sin and chaos we keep running it into. And he brings it back into his redeemed grace. And sometimes we don't see it because we are so caught up in our own little world. But God is out working and doing good, taking things to his good pleasure that ultimately results in joy for his people and glory for him. Practically, what I would like to ask you today is what does the focus of your character usually result in in people around you? What do people understand about who God is because of your character? 
I think it's a good question to ask because we need to find out if people around us are learning who, more who Jesus is because of how we are living out our lives. Are they understanding him less? Do they have a warped view of who he is because of how we display him to people around us? And when, when I talk about you know, Jesus and displaying Jesus, I mean the Jesus of the Bible, okay? not the ones we make up in our own heads. The Jesus of the Bible calls people to hope and grace, but he also calls us to repentance, to turn from our self-centered ways, to return to who he is calling us to be, where we surrender everything in our lives to him. I think only by living surrendered lives to him will we notice our character become what God calls it to be because he is always calling us. He is always moving us. He is always showing us grace and compassion and goodness. And something that grace and compassion is discipline. Sometimes it's hard things. I think as Americans, this is really hard for us because so often we equate equate Americanism with Christianity. And those two things sometimes are very different. With our current cultural climate that we are in, it's very hard at times to say, I'm going to follow God, and sometimes that might even feel a little un-American at times because of who God calls us to be, loving the foreigners in our midst and loving those who are unlovable and stepping out and offer redeeming grace, not condoning what everybody does around us, but loving in a way that God first loved us. I think there's sometimes it does go hand in hand, but I think there are other times that it gets very difficult in the midst of it. And we as people first are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ above everything else. And this isn't meant to sound like a political statement because it's not. What I'm telling you is that the gospel comes first and people will understand who Jesus is by how we live. By what we do. It doesn't make God love us more or anything like that because God already does love us. But what it does is it begins to help us to show his character of who he is to all those who are questioning or don't understand. Because there are a lot of crazy Christians out there. And I know you know this. Sometimes it's so hard to even take the name of Christian upon yourself because of what people have done to the name of Jesus. But we must be a people who live out the name, who redeem the name, who show the world Jesus is because we begin to live in love like Jesus has first loved us. Our character shows who God is. This is why we come to communion every week. Because at communion, we understand what God did to rescue and save us. That's why you take that cracker and either you break it or you get a broken one. It's all to remind you of Christ's body which was broken for us. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people. Because our God stepped into our broken situation and rescued and redeemed us. Our God first shows love to us. Our God first forgives our sins. Our God brings us in. Our God does all of these things because that is who he is. And when we understand that, I think it changes how we begin to live. The band's going to come up. As I do, you can take communion. Uh, There'll be some deacons in the back if you guys need prayer. I mean, maybe you are in a place today uh, where you don't necessarily... Uh, understand all that there is to understand about this redeeming grace and love of God. I would encourage you to go and pray with them. Uh, Maybe you're in a place today where you feel like your character is shot and people don't understand God at all because of how you've been living and saying, oh, I love God, but you don't live for him at all. Well, they'd love to pray with you about that because the beauty of, of God's grace is that redemption is always possible. Redemption is there. It has been offered. We can be restored. The whole idea of the word repentance, that you see all these words in the book of Ruth that say return, that's repentance. Teshuva, return to who God is calling you to be. This is the Jewish concept of coming home. And God calls all of us to be a people who come home because he has provided a way. And so I would encourage all of us in this room 
to live the gospel out. It's okay to believe that following Jesus is the one and only way, but that should engender a great non-exclusive love in our hearts for those around us. So we live that out so people see it. Uh, there's offering boxes in the side wall in the back. And we give because God gives so much to us. Giving is then part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. There's food in the back. Grab some to eat. Meet some other people. Have some conversations with others. Maybe talk about character. And, and what does the character of your life reveal about who God is? Like, if, if people don't know who God is, what would they understand him to be like because of how you live your life? And how they interact with you? And what, again, what does that look like? And again, this isn't meant to be a whole push for legalism. Because God already does love you. It doesn't make God love you more. But what it does is it helps us to reflect who God is by how we begin to live. Because Jesus is good, and he is holy, and he is true, and he is the one and only way to relationship with God, his death and his resurrection, and we live and love and follow him in all things. And that should change the world around us because his people step out in grace and hope. And honor him in all things. So let's live as his people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would direct us and lead us and guide us to understand better your grace and your goodness. That we would understand stories of, of Naomi, even in the midst of her loss and her bitterness. She still has this understanding of you as a sovereign God who stands above all things, who understands if our lives are going to be blessed in any way. It comes first from your hand. And so I ask that we would be a people who see that blessing. Maybe in ways we never have before us, begin to see how you work through our lives in so many ways that we tend to often just overlook. I ask that you would teach us to be like Boaz, to be a people who find no shame in walking around and saying, the Lord bless you. Maybe in our vernacular today, and you know, not weird, but, but say things in a way that reflect the goodness of who you are, that our excitement about your love and grace that has rescued us would be made known and manifest because of how we speak of it. We ask that you would teach us to be like Ruth, who works hard and works well, even in a situation that looks hopeless and pointless. And I ask that you would remind us that we do all these things not because... It makes you love us more. But it's simply how we get to reflect the great love you have already displayed to us. I ask that we would bless because we understand the blessings first given to us. I ask that we would give and serve others because we see how you came as a servant to rescue and save lost and broken people. And I ask that you would teach us to understand that worship in our lives is everything that we do. That it's not just singing songs or hearing a message or hanging out in a building on a Sunday morning. It is how we live out our lives. Because you are the one who is worthy. And so teach us as a people to lift you up in all that we do. Because you are the great God who has rescued and redeemed us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.